The Settle Down Podcast. You are listening to The Settle Down Podcast. With your host, Sean Settles. I'm here today with Dave Bio-Baronic. Let's just start all the way at the beginning. What made you want to join the Navy? Uh, you know, that's a hard <laughs> You're starting with the hard one. <laughs> I, when, I, when I started uh, thinking back about you know, about my, uh, where it came from. I, I can't remember anything specific. Um, my real decision was to, to be a fighter pilot. And I remember, I just remember time I was around 10, 11 years old. Uh, I remember that just came to me uh, and I would sit in school and talk to some friends. I remember these guys specifically, we talked about airplanes and it was just something that just came to me. Um, uh, before that, I'd wanted to do various different things, but then after I thought about that fighter pilot thing, I never changed my mind. Uh, but for me, it was either the Air Force or the Navy. I didn't, I wasn't really decided until it came time to pick one uh, when I went all the way to college and I picked the Navy. Um, as a kid, my dad used to take us to air shows, so that probably uh, had something to do with the flying jets thing. Now... Why did you decide to become a Rio instead of a pilot? Uh, that decision was made for me. My, uh, when I was in college, my eyesight went bad, and uh, you had to have 20-20 vision to, uh, to be a pilot. And this was in the 1970s. Uh, I started college in 1975, and, and LASIK and you know radio keratotomy, those were not an option. So, uh, so there's no way I was going to be a pilot. And I had some friends who, you know, faced this situation and they said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to fly at all if I can't be the guy flying the plane. But for me, I still wanted to fly. And I learned that the F-14, you know, brand new F-14 had the backseater and he could wear glasses. And so that's what I decided to do. Um, the Navy also had the F-4 Phantom. That would have been a, a great alternative, but I really wanted to be an F-14 backseater. Now in the Navy today, Will they allow people to get LASIK and get their eyesight corrected and be a pilot, or does it have to be natural to be 2020? Nope. I think uh, both the Navy and Air Force allow uh, uh, corrective surgery. And I, I've talked to a few people about this. Uh, I don't think they allow LASIK, but I think they allow uh, another surgery. And, you know, I, since the rules change and I don't keep up with it, I'm really not an expert. But I do think they allow corrective surgery. Now, is it the case where most Rios wanted to be a pilot and something like your situation occurred? Or is there, any, is there people that actually joined the Navy saying, I want to be a Rio? Or uh, I would, uh, that's a hard, that's a question I'm not sure about. I think, I think probably a lot of guys, yeah, wanted to be a pilot at first. It just, they just don't know about being a Rio. I mean, uh, now, since Top Gun and Goose came out, maybe more people, you know, Top Gun came out 30 years ago or 35 years ago. Do the math, yeah. And, uh, you know, so more people know what a Rio is. But I think most people wanted to be pilots and then they found out about what a Rio was and they couldn't be a pilot. And they, yeah, they did what I did. The people listening at home, Rio is what Goose was to Maverick. To yeah, Rio is a radar intercept officer. And it's the backseater in the, in a two seat. And now now they changed the term to, to uh, WIZO, Weapons System Operator. 
Uh, and so the Navy and the Air Force use the same term for their uh, backseaters and fighters. Do they still currently have a backseat fighter? I know there's, I know some of the teams, don't they have, some have backseats and some don't? Is that yeah, how that's, that's true, Sean. Uh, on an aircraft carrier, there's going to be four squadrons of uh, FA-18, uh, and I think they're all Super Hornets now. And three of those squadrons are single seat, and one of those squadrons is a two-seat Super Hornet squadron. And then the Air Force has uh, some two-seat F-15s called uh, F-15E Strike Eagles, which is a, a very capable airplane also. You were talking about an aircraft carrier. Did you spend time stationed on an aircraft carrier? Yes. Yeah, and my, uh, my first uh, squadron tour, which was a little over three years long, I went on two deployments, and each one, those were extended overseas deployments. Each one was seven and a half months. Uh, and, and that was just, there was no war. This was in the early 1980s, and those were just, uh, you know, peacetime national or, you know, deployments. The, the U.S. Navy travels around the world uh, to demonstrate uh, presence as a stability factor, to demonstrate U.S. interests and things like that. And um, it's, you know, it's been doing this since the end of World War II. Uh, the other thing was in my entire career, the Navy keeps track of every day that you spend on a deployment. And so in, uh, uh, excuse me, on a ship. And so um, my career was just over 20 years and I spent uh, a little over six years worth Ooh. on ships. So it's about one third. I had the opportunity to tour the USS Midway when I was vis visiting San Diego a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. Was that the same kind of class of ship that you stayed on or was it? Uh, I mean, it's, it's similar. The Midway was, uh, was built, I believe, at, right at the end of World War II. And uh, it was, you know, an incredibly large carrier. And the oldest carrier that I was on was built in the 50s. And it was... Um, maybe 20% bigger than the Midway. And then the final carrier I was on was the Nimitz, which is a nuclear carrier, and that's uh, even a little bit bigger. But, but uh, all the carriers I was on, the length was around more than 1,000 feet, around 1,100 feet long. How was day-to-day -day life living on a carrier when I was touring the Midway? It seemed like it would be it wouldn't be a fun environment to live in for an extended amount of time. It was pretty tight and high. You just get used to it. You know, if, if you don't, you're, you're in the wrong business. And, you know, and then some people find out that, uh, that, that it's not for them. But, um, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating. And it was actually, it was, it was kind of fun. The problem was, after about a week, you're like, okay, I've had enough of this. <laughs> but if you're out there for seven and a half months, you know, you you don't have any, any option. You stay. Uh, at least we were fortunate we got to fly uh, about every other day, you know, go for a flight. Uh, uh, but the ship's crew, most, the majority of the people live on the ship. But it's, uh, it's very organized. Um, you know, I mean, all the comforts are taken care of. There's plenty of food. Uh, and on nuclear carriers, there's uh, tons of air conditioning. In fact, you know, it, it, 
a lot of people wore jackets on board because it's so cold, no matter where you are. Really? Yeah. How long were you in the Navy before you got the opportunity to go to Top Gun training? Oh, okay. So I'll give you a quick outline of my first few <laughs> years. As soon as I graduated from college, just a few weeks after graduation, I went to Pensacola for training. And uh, some guys had to wait, you know, two months, six months, whatever. I just went, I just only had to wait a couple of weeks. I trained at Pensacola for about, uh, about one year. Then I went out to San Diego and I uh, did F-14 training. And that lasted about 10 months. And so I joined my first F-14 squadron uh, about 22 months after graduated from college. And then for me, that squadron lasted um, three and a half years. And, and um, let's see, about a year, I'm thinking back April to September, about 16 months after I joined that squadron, I went through Top Gun school as a student. And that, when I was there, Top Gun school lasted five weeks. It was great flying, it was very challenging, uh, but it was just incredible flying. And then, and then uh, the pilot that I was with, uh, he and I both did well and we were both invited back to be instructors. And I went back to be an instructor um, at, when, I, when I left my squadron, which was about, like I said, a little over three years. Is it an honor to be selected to actually get to go through Top Gun training the way it's portrayed in film? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I think uh, most, most junior officers, and, and that's most of the guys that go through, even back in my, especially back in my day, were, were young guys. And I think uh, everyone wanted, you know, wanted to go through. Uh, certainly, I mean, everybody that I met who was there wanted to be there, so. So, from the timeline in between finishing Top Gun training and becoming an instructor for the school, how many years were in between? Well, I went back to my squadron for, um, let's see, that was 82, for two more years. And I was supposed to only go back for uh, one and a half years but they were having problems getting people through the training. And my squadron commanding officer said, you know, I don't want bio to leave until I get a guy to replace him. And so he held me in the squadron, but he was coordinating with Top Gun. They said, okay, we'll, we'll hold this slot open. So I went back to my regular squadron for two years and I continued to be an F-14 uh, Rio. And then I went to Top Gun and became an instructor. So you were a fairly young guy when you were an instructor at the school. Yeah, when I was there, uh, I was, I'm pretty confident that I was the youngest instructor there. And I was, uh, I was 26, about the, yeah, I was 26 years old uh, when I got there. Because most people's outside perception is just from watching a movie. And it shows the older guys as the instructors and the younger guys, so. Oh, well, yeah, the, uh, the squadron commander was a, uh, at the time I was there, he was a senior commander. So he was a, the ripe old age of 40, you know, and I mean, I don't know how old you are. You can keep that secret, but, but think back when you're 25 years old, someone who's 40 seems like an old man, yes. you know? And so the squadron, the Top Gun uh, commanding officer was 40 and that's who uh, Tom Skerritt played yes. in the movie. 
And then the, uh, the other senior officers were uh, more in their uh, early to mid thirties. And then the, uh, but then the majority was the junior officers like me who were, uh, you know, 26 to 30 years old. When I was doing my research for this interview, I got on a podcast app and just typed your name in and I found one where you had been a guest previously and you had mentioned encounters where you guys had to intercept Russian planes in yeah. the past. What was that experience like? Well, the, the first time you do it, um, it, it's pretty exciting. You know, and I was a new guy in the squadron. Um, I'd been in the squadron, you know, four to five months. We're, we're sailing out into the Western Pacific. You know what to expect. You know that you get into this certain area. That's where the, uh, back then it was Soviets. Back then, you know, they, would, they could come down and they would want to, uh, you know, they would test your, your surveillance and your responses. They'd try to look at your airplanes and stuff like that. So when you got in this area west of Hawaii, you knew you were susceptible to, to have them come down and look at you. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, if, if like a, an American destroyer or a, or a station in, you know, some other country detected them, they would say, okay, the bombers are headed towards you. And there's, they're called, the code name for the bomber is the bear. It's the TU-95 or TU-142 bear. Uh, and that's a NATO code name for that bomber. So they would say, okay, the bears are, are coming down, you know, your direction. And based on their speed and everything, it looks like they'll be here at this time. So the carrier had, you know, a variety of, of options. They may have airplanes already up flying. We, the carrier flew almost every day during employment, uh, practicing training and stuff. And if there were planes that were available, they could say, okay, you guys break off your mission, go over here and escort the bears. Or depending on the time of day, they may launch you from an alert on the flight deck. And that's, that was great fun. You're sitting there in your jet. Uh, you know, if you, you probably get noticed that, okay, we're going to launch in 15 minutes or whatever, or maybe launch the alert five and you're sitting there. Some guys used to sleep. I never used to sleep because I didn't want to have to wake up. And all of a sudden there's guys running around, plugging in, you know, or starting up hoses, electricity and all kinds of stuff. And you have to get off the flight deck in five minutes. And it, it is, you've got to get your airplane started up and, so it, from that perspective, it's very exciting. Then you get up there and you see this bear, and it is a giant airplane. I mean, it's large. And it's got uh, four counter-rotating propellers, so it's a total of eight propellers. And if you get a little bit close, you can hear it, which is unusual. And then, you know, just in your mind, you know those guys are the enemy. They're the Soviets. And, uh, and actually, as you get close, or excuse me, as you approach this situation, something that, uh, that we did when we were preparing, uh, people would, would, you know, refresh experiences from the past. And sometimes they would, um, the, the Soviets would fly slow, fly slow, and you're trying to fly formation on them, and they'd slow down, slow down, and then they'd turn into you. And you have to maneuver to avoid a collision. If you're not ready, you could lose control of your airplane. So they're trying to make you crash. That's and, and, you know, 
you know, every once in a while you see them complain about an American fighter. Okay, and Sean, I'm just going to go out and put this. I don't know how many people are going to watch your podcast, but you see them complain about an American fighter coming too close or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't remember anybody ever caring when they did that to us, you know, but that, that of course, that was back in the 80s also anyway. Okay, so, so it was all pretty exciting. We had to take intelligence photos and we made notes about the airplane and all that. So then the first couple of times you see them, it's okay, pretty cool. But then other times they would send these uh, aircraft called the IL-38 May. And it's a patrol plane, not a, not a bomber or missile launcher. And it was just dull. And I remember sitting there going like, oh, God, can't, why do we have to escort this guy? This is so boring. You know, I'd rather be over doing my training mission. But, you know, you got to do it anyway. Now, by escort, where are you escorting them to? The theory was that they would try to uh, find the aircraft carrier, and sometimes the carrier was easy to find because it would have its radios on and stuff. Other times, the carrier would be, you know, radio silent. But the the the, uh, the Soviet plane would often fly near the carrier, and they told us that they always wanted a fighter between the the plane and the carrier okay so if they took pictures of the carrier they would see an american fighter you know flying there protecting the carrier symbolically so so when we say escort we just mean fly on their wing whenever they are you know within a certain range of the carrier and then and that you know we were talking to the admiral and the admiral staff on the radio and they'd say okay you know you can break it off come on home was there ever a time that you guys thought it was more serious than just a escort situation and kind of got the adrenaline going a little bit or? Uh, you know, not really. I, I, we were out there when the uh, Soviet interceptor shot down the Korean airliner. I was on deployment when that happened. You know, it was a, it was a tragic case. And we were all talking, you know, what does this mean? But it's like, really, it's like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to go to the, to war with the Soviet Union today or this week. So, uh, no, I can't really claim that, you know, I wasn't thinking Tom Clancy and what if they try to, you know, do this or whatever. I, I just didn't think like that. So you were a Top Gun instructor yeah. while the movie was being filmed. Yeah. Uh, do you have any pet peeves where people are always trying to quote the movie to you all the time? One of my friends, uh, when I was, when I was there filming the movie, I was flying the black jets and one of my friends got me this uh, model. I was as a Rio, I was in the backseat of the two seater. And so he made sure to get me the uh, model of the two seater. Um, No, I don't mind people, you know, I I don't mind people quoting the movie or, uh, or asking me about it. you know, I, I've written books about it. And so, uh, you know, the more people ask about it, uh, it, it's fine for books, but also it was, uh, you know, it was fun. And, and as I wrote in my first book, I don't have my first book here. I got my, my new book here, Tomcat Rio. But as I wrote in my first book, which is called uh, Top Gun Days, and, and maybe you can put a link or, or well, absolutely. but I say this uh, because in Top Gun days, I talk about filming the movie. 
and uh, I, I didn't really give it much thought. I mean, it was it was kind of fun to film the flying scenes just because it was uh, was different. Um, at the time, I was a Top Gun instructor. I was flying in you know Top Gun jets, and we flew these very or these yeah they're very complex and and well uh, supervised training flights. Now they, they were not scripted. We would go out there, we would set up a situation and then it would be fights on and whatever happens, happens. But as an instructor, you have to be very alert to what's going on. You've got to be able to go back and, and debrief it in detail. So it's, it's very demanding. I mean, it's, it's great fun because you're flying in a jet fighter, yeah. but, it, but it was demanding. And so flying for the movie was totally different from that. Uh, and it was just kind of interesting to fly around next to a Learjet and with the, had the cameras in it and all this other stuff. But I, I really, I didn't give any thought to this movie uh, being anything. And as, as, as evidence of that, uh, we hung out with the, uh, with the actors uh, one afternoon. They said, hey, the actors want to get a sense of you guys. So go meet them at this local bar in San Diego and just hang out and tell stories with them. And uh, so we did that. And then uh, I went up to Paramount with a pilot for two days and we, we helped, helped them to uh, cut the flying scenes together because they weren't sure how the different film segments put together. They didn't know what to say, what the guys would say when they're flying. So I did those things. I didn't take a single photo. <laughs> of of me you know hey here's me and tom cruise here's me and anthony edwards here's me at paramount studios nothing so i'm going like no oh, well <laughs> how was it like working with the actors was there any kind of hollywood actor egos going on or were they just pretty normal guys when it came to hanging out with you guys well i i you know i wish i had uh, something uh, scandalous or <laughs> whatever to tell you but my recollection was that they were all pretty normal and part of that might have been the age thing tom cruise i remember turned uh, 23 when they were filming the movie and when they filmed the movie you know i was 26 i turned 27 so he's a few years younger than me but but really not a lot younger so the actors were a little bit younger than us as instructors and most of them were just getting started so they didn't really have, you know, a lot of ego, you know, big egos yet. Yeah, I guess that was kind of a lot of their first or second movie. So they, none of them were superstars at the time. Yeah. yeah. And then I remember, uh, I, I briefly talked to uh, Michael Ironsides, who played, uh, does he play Jester? Yes, Jester. Yeah, Jester. <laughs> And uh, I talked to him and, you know, I just said hi. And he just goes, you know, like, yeah, hi, whatever. <laughs> so you said you flew in one of the fake MiGs for the movie that they painted black. Did any of the scenes that you were in appear on camera or? Well, that, that's a good question because uh, when I was uh, flying out to film, uh, well, so one, all of the guys who were Top Gun instructors flew in the jets. They, there was enough filming uh, that everybody got to fly. And, uh, and the backseaters, we took turns flying in the, 
in the, there was one of the MIGs was a two seater. And so the Top Gun instructor Rios took turns flying in that back seat. And then the pilots, they flew in, you know, the A4 Skyhawks and the other, and the other MIGs and the, the front of the two seater. So I go, well, when I go out there, I want to make sure that I can see, uh, I can tell that it's myself. So I rolled up my sleeves. We all had to wear black helmets and black flight suits. And they told us in the briefing, they go, okay, you got to have your oxygen mask on and your visor down. And so everybody had to be anonymous. And the reason was that they wanted to be able to, if they shot something on Monday afternoon and they shot something else on Tuesday morning, they wanted to be able to cut that together. You know, I, so when I was going out there to film, I rolled up my sleeves on my flight suit. So I go, oh, I'm going to be able to point to myself and say, you know, that's me. So as we're flying out there, the, uh, somebody in the Learjet noticed that, and they said, you know, hey, Rio, in the back seat of the two-seater, put your sleeves down. And I go, like, okay. <laughs> but, but there is a scene, there's one scene where they've got four of the, of the MiGs together, and you can see a flash from the back seat, and it, it's like maybe as a reflection from my camera lens, because I did take a few pictures uh, back then. And then also, I think it was me in the back seat of the uh, where they're communicating, you know? Converted scene. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I filmed that, another Rio filmed it, but, you know, I think it was me. <laughs> so. In uh, F 14, what happens when you hit the brakes? I know that's a pretty famous scene in the movie. Does it really work like it does in the movie? or? Oh yeah, the reason they put that in there is that the uh, the two lead advisors, one was a, a Top Gun instructor, his name was Rat Willard, and the other was uh, F-14 pilot, who was the lead F-14 advisor, and he's uh, Bozo uh, Abel. They were up in uh, Nevada where, where they filmed a lot of those overland scenes. And they were up there for, I think, uh, two weeks. I mean, I, I, I did not go on that trip. Uh, I would have to look it up. And, uh, and the, you know, the majority of the scenes were planned by uh, the script. And then the director, uh, Tony Scott, he sketched out what he wanted to see the airplanes do. And so, so Rat and Bozo were saying, you know, well, we need to come up with some cool maneuver that shows that Maverick is really a skilled pilot. So they talked about what the F-14 could do, and they talked about what the camera could film. And they came up with this thing called a, a pitch pulse. Whereas if the F-14 pilot snaps back on the stick, the plane's going to squirt up like that, really slow down, and the plane behind it, if he's not on his game, he's going to shoot out in front, okay? And so they actually did that. I mean, of course, they, they uh, coordinated it with the guy following them. They actually did that, and it, it looks pretty dramatic. But there's a couple of problems with, the, uh, with doing that in real life. Uh, one is when the F-14 does that, it's going to lose a lot of airspeed and going to be kind of slow. And so, you know, it, it better get that kill because otherwise he's, he's going to be uh, uh, defensive quickly. And, and that's the main problem. Uh, so 
you know, you give up everything for that one shot. The other thing, I guess, is if you do it too soon and the guy's too far behind you, he can either, you know, do a, a, a displacement maneuver, displacement roll, or he can unload and change and wait for you to get done with your little game and come around and shoot you down. You know? yeah. So it's very, you know, <laughs> it looks good on film. That was a real, that was a real move there. How often did the actual actors get to go up in the planes? Oh, they, uh, most of them, I believe, went up one time. And I think Tom Cruise went up three times. And, and we, uh, <laughs> we, we talked about that a little bit uh, back at Miramar when it was happening. And, and once again, it, it's not like we sat there and followed every, you know, followed yeah, yeah. this closely. It's like, because we were Top Gun instructors having a class during the day. I mean, we were busy and, and we loved our jobs, you know. But, you know, we, we threw little notes. We discussed notes about it, you know. But when I went up to Paramount, they showed us the uh, footage. Because when they took the actors up in the F-14, they had a, a movie camera up on top where the radar screen scope normally was in the back. And they filmed the actors, and they were trying to use that in the movie. And so uh, when I was up at Paramount for two days, we went over to the the Paramount Theater, which was a beautiful theater, and they showed that film, and it was hilarious because the actors all got sick, except Goose, I think, was the only one who didn't get sick. And the plan was that they were going to uh, film them in a dogfight, and they'd be looking around, and there were other planes swirling around behind them. Uh, but the guys, they would say, you know, they would tell them, okay, turn on the camera, or, or the pilot turned on the camera. Pilots turn on the camera. Now, act like you're looking around. And they turn their heads, and then they go like, oh. And the, the thing is, if you're in, and you learn this as a Rio, if you're maneuvering, when you turn your head, that will make you dizzy if you're not used to it. You know, I mean, once, once you're a Rio or, or a pilot, and you've been doing this for a few times, you, you get used to it. You can do anything. But if you're brand new, turning your head is the worst thing to do. <laughs> It'll make you sick. What were your experiences when you first started flying? And I got sick. I got sick a couple of times in uh, Pensacola, but but I suspected I would, so I had a barf bag. And I mean, I don't want to go into detail, but luckily, after I just got sick, I got over it and started feeling better. So it's not like I just, you know, was a a met, you know, a, uh, a zombie in the back seat. I just had an upset stomach. Got it out and, and kept going. And then got back to work. And then uh, luckily I got over that uh, after a few times. So you've written a couple of books now. What got you to write your story down and put it in book, book form? You know that? That was something that just came to me. Um, it was probably uh, a year after I retired from the Navy. I had a job as a uh, IT project manager for a small company. And I was driving home from work one night. And I thought, I go, I'm going to write a magazine article about making the movie Top Gun. And then within, you know, less than a minute, I was just thinking about it. And I think I go, I'm going to write a book. 
So I went home and I told my wife, you know, I'm thinking about writing a book. She goes, oh, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> so I did. And uh, the interest, it, for me, it was a lot of fun to write a book. I did a lot of research. I have my, uh, I have my flight log book. I have, you know, some references about the F-14. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I, I was able to do a lot of research. I actually had, you know, I had notes about some specific flights, but, but the flights that I wrote about in detail are the ones that really made a big impression on me. And so I was able to remember them in pretty good detail. And I also, I took some photos, uh, you know, while I was flying. And so, um, and I go, oh, I've got pictures to illustrate, you know, to the book. So it was fun to write the book. The hard part was getting published. Anybody that, if anybody is watching and they uh, think about that, um, what my advice would be, what's your goal? If your goal is to write a book, write it, get it out, enjoy it. Uh, and then if your goal is to have a published book, well, that's a completely different process. So, you know, yeah, go for that also, but it's, it's a lot of that's out of your control. So anyone that's listening to this, where can they find your book if they want to purchase a copy? Well, you have two books, uh, don't you? I now have three books. This, three books. Yep. The one that I uh, waved earlier, Tomcat Rio, uh, this one just came out uh, this month, but uh, all of three of them are on uh, amazon.com. And I think they're all on Barnes and Noble. Uh, the first two are available as uh, ebooks and audiobooks also. Tomcat Rio has just come out, so it's, uh, it's not available as in the alternate formats yet. It's only a book. And my website. My website's got uh, a lot of information, uh, short stories that, that uh, did not make it into the book. It's got a lot of pictures, so there's a lot of material on my website, too. What was the uh, URL on the website again? topgunbio.com t o p g u n b i o topgunbio.com now out of all the questions i asked you what are the most common questions you get asked that i may have missed um that's a good question uh, i always try to wrap up with that because i may have missed something that someone listening to this may want to hear and it's something that you get asked commonly that I missed. Well, I'll tell you two things. And uh, since, since you mentioned wrapping up and I, we're looking at our time, this is about the uh, planned time. One thing is uh, what does a Rio do? And so in the F-14 uh, and, and the current modern day Wizzo, uh, it's, it's similar, but in the F-14, the, uh, they could not automate the radar. They're, it was a complex and capable radar and they just didn't have the computer power to automate it. And so they needed a guy back there to run the radar. And so that was my job. I had 98% I had of the radar controls. The pilot had a few uh, controls in the front, but they were, but you know, it was just in case he saw something and wanted to, to get it on the radar. So my main job was to run the radar, but then also the Navy was smart. They go, okay, we've got this other guy in the plane, so they did a very good job of managing cockpit resources. So the backseater was assigned uh, navigation and communication. Now, a Navy fighter pilot knows how to navigate and talk on the radios, but in the F-14, it was the backseater who did it uh, 
almost exclusively. And then the other things I did was uh, in the F-14, I, I had like what I say is co-pilot duties. It was my responsibility to, to go through the takeoff checklist before we took off. And I, if we had a problem with the airplane, I'm, you know, the pilots up there flying, I did not have any flight controls. But if we had a problem with the airplane, I had the same systems knowledge that he did. We both knew how the fuel system worked, the hydraulic system and everything. And so we'd work together to, uh, to resolve the problem and get the plane back. Uh, now, when you talk about operating the radar, it's not, it's not like it was sitting in some pit. I mean, the F-14 had this beautiful bubble canopy, so I had an incredible view of the world. Uh, it's just that I had the radar scopes in front of me also. So that's what the Rio did. And then the other thing is, a lot of people ask me about my ejection. I ejected from an F-14 on a carrier landing. Oh, really? And this is the handle that I pulled. This is actually, uh, this is a handle from another seat because when you pull it, it's on the front of the seat. When you pull it, it's, it's cabled into the seat. You can't hold onto it. It gets yanked out of your hand. That was uh, pretty exciting and, and a lot of fun also. Why'd you have to eject from? When we were landing on the carrier, the uh, arresting cable uh, that we caught was not set right because the guy who is responsible for that was a trainee and he wasn't being supervised. So it wasn't set right. So we came in, we caught that cable, it slowed us down, but then all the machinery broke because we were a lot heavier than it was set for. All the machinery broke and so we just rolled off the end of the flight deck. And uh, I, I can send you the link, that video is on YouTube. Oh, I'll have to look that up. I'll send you the link to that. Is the uh, ejection scene of Top Gun, is that something similar that could really happen in real life, or is that how Hollywood? Sean, that's a great question. The way that scene came in was uh, when they were writing the movie, they had, you know, the, the script, and they gave it to, uh, to Top Gun to review. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I wrote in my book, uh, Top Gun days uh, about how we would sit around the ready room and, and the first version of the script just had, there was just too many misunderstandings. I mean, it, they had the basic story there, but the details, they got a lot of details wrong. And that's why they came to us, you know, it was our job to fix the details. So one thing they said was, well, uh, the Rio has got to be killed. Uh, I, okay, that's a spoiler. I hope everybody's already seen the movie. Somebody's got to be killed. And they said uh, they wanted it to, ha to happen in a carrier landing mishap, a crash on the carrier. But the Navy said, no, no, you, there's not a lot of crashes on carriers and we don't want it to look like there are, so that's not gonna happen. So at the time, uh, a lot of the Top Gun instructors have been F-14 pilots in Rios. And so we knew you know, the flaws of the F-14 and one of them was that it's, its engines are susceptible to, to flaming out if they run through turbulence. It, it doesn't happen a lot. It never happened to me, but it could happen. And then if you flame out, if you get in a spin, which every, a lot of things would have to go wrong, you know. So what happened is not common, but it's conceivable. So when they were testing the F-14, they were doing spin testing, uh, they could not pull out of the spin, and the, and the crew had to eject, the flight test crew. And when they ejected, the, the canopy comes off first, 
and it's supposed to blow behind the airplane, but in a spin, it, okay. this one, it just hung up above the airplane and the Rio actually hit it. And I think he broke his leg. He wasn't killed, but we're sitting there at Top Gun and we're going, he could have been killed. And so that's how, uh, that's how the mishap in the movie came about. It was, it was plausible. Well, at least they didn't over-dramatize. I know some of those movies make stuff happen that's impossible to do. So. You know, I, I would say the, uh, the locker room scene is enough over-dramatization. Dramat <laughs> and the volleyball, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was at Top Gun, we played softball. We didn't play volleyball. <laughs> and and the students did not have a locker room so although and again I, I keep talking about my book but I, my book includes a lot of little details like this those lockers that were used in the locker room scene those were our lockers we we came into our locker room one day and we had different lockers and and somebody goes oh yeah they took your lockers out and they took them over to this place and set them up to use for the movie. And then for about three days later, our little lockers came back and we go, okay, our actual lockers are in the movie. So yeah, that's good. Well, I really appreciate your time and sharing your stories for you guys listening. Top Gun Days, Top Gun Rio. What's the other book's name? Top, Tomcat Rio. And the, the middle book is called Before Top Gun Days. And that talks about my training. Uh, and I admit, I say, you know, I, you know, I was trying hard, I did well, and but I go, a lot of it's just so complex and, and a little bit confusing. And so if a person's reading that thing, they may wonder, well, how did this guy ever get, you know, get to be a Top Gun instructor? So at the end of the book, I include four stories uh, that where I had my act together. And so it's like, okay, there is a payoff. You know, you, you can learn this stuff. And those are available on Amazon? Yep. Then topgunbio.com? Yep. See Very good. Stories. Good, Sean. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good Thank luck. Thank you.